0: It's wonderful to see you guys this morning. My name is Tony. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, If you've been on vacation, welcome back. If you're new or visiting or checking us out, we're excited to have you. Last week, we had a uh, celebration to mark our one-year anniversary as a replant in this place. And It was super fun, exciting. Uh, If you missed it and you're curious about who we are and what we've been up to, uh, go check it out. Uh, It's posted in our sermons page on our website. Now, if you're a kid, if you're in elementary school and you were here last week and you went to your classroom, I have a treat for you. So we showed a little video last week, and I'm going to show it again so that you guys get to see it. Can we click the lights off, Charlie, in that corner? In November of 1891, Mayflower Church was founded and it grew and thrived over the years. It's this amazing place that has really been a place where people have encountered the person of Jesus. They've been transformed, families have grown up together. I'm Paul Davis, came here as a four year old, and uh, of course, been attending ever since. There was just a life in this church in the 60s and 70s that I remember experiencing. And it's happening all over again. My name is Danielle Carpenter. At the time when we first started coming, there was a lot of uh, tribulations that were going on family-wise with my extended family. And it was just kind of um, pressed on my heart to to be here and to seek God. We just really left it. As soon as we got here, it was just kind of like, this is where... We can be easily. My name is Paul E. Davis, and I've been at this church for 56 years. What's been amazing is the number of new families that we've had, and that's been refreshing. Our, our children's uh, ministry has gone from six kids, one or two be uh, before Tony came to, I don't know, 25, 30 children, many different families. As I've just Seeing people excited about the process, excited about uh, the change, uh, again, has brought a, a great hope, and uh, I think it has revolutionized my, my faith. I'm Amy Eldridge, and been here a year. I mean, it had been my heart's desire to reconnect uh, with the Lord in a deeper way, but I just, I was just stuck. to have that fire reignited, and to get in touch with My calling from when I was 16 years old. Um, It's pretty awesome. My name's Claire and I'm 7 years old. It's different that there's more kids. God is on the move. And the coolest part about it, in many ways for me, has been watching the individual transformation. The sort of refrain early on is, we might be replanting this church, but God is replanting my heart. It might sound a little silly, but it was so true. As God was bringing fresh air and fresh spirit experiences of Jesus that were shaping and transforming people. Anyway, I want to show that again just so the kids could get it this time. Are you guys glad we got to see it today? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so if you're in elementary school, you're going to go hang out with uh, your teachers back there. If you're in middle school or high school and you want to hang out with uh, Charlie and Matt, they're back there. They got some fun stuff planned. Uh, feel free to join them. They'd love for you to hang out with them. And if you're an adult, welcome. <laughs> We're... Uh, Last week, we got to see sort of what God has been doing in this place, and it's really been a fun and amazing to see. But we've been traveling through uh, the Gospel of John, and we've hit chapter 4. And chapter, kind of, chapter 4 is kind of a fun story about Jesus and a woman that he encounters. And this is how it reads. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard... That Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life.'" The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty.'" Or have to come here to draw water. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Oh, sorry. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, so... There's a lot going on. It's kind of this longer interchange or dialogue. And then after this, we're going to actually watch as it continues to develop in chapter four. But for now, uh, let's just sort of dive in. So our text today begins with this word about baptism, right? So you have John's baptizing people. Jesus' disciples are baptizing people. There's some word about the Pharisees sort of spreading this little competitiveness, like who's baptizing more? And so Jesus decides to go into Judea. And the way he goes is from Judea, through Samaria to Galilee. Now, this is a map. Hopefully, it'll give you some sense of sort of geography. Now, there's three basic routes to go from Judea to Galilee. So Judea is down there. Do you see it on the bottom? Uh, That sort of the Dead Sea is down there. And then if you go up to the Sea of Galilee, it's up north. There's two normal routes that a Jewish man would take if he wanted to go to Galilee from Judea going north He would usually go along the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, um, or he would go along the Jordan, which connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. He would go along that to avoid Samaria. What Jesus decides to do, though, is go through the middle, through via Sychar. Uh, It's about a 70-mile journey from here to basically like Campbell-ish, give or take a mile or two. So it's like basically 70 miles, or you can go around and it takes a lot longer. Now, most people in that day would go one of the sort of outside routes to avoid the Samaritans, and there's a few reasons here. One is that uh, after the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, when they came back, Samaritans were living in the center of their land. Samaritans trace their heritage uh, through Jacob and Manasseh. Anyway, they sort of define themselves as descendants of Abraham. And when the Jews came back from exile, there's lots of conflict. A lot of animosity there 's actually outright skirmishes, and in the first century, by the time the Jews have sort of settled in the surrounding area uh, any time or often when Jews would go from Judea to Galilee, maybe after a pilgrim or after a festival, the pilgrims would actually be attacked on that route so there 's a lot of bad blood here. The Jewish people would have considered the Samaritans outcasts, so they avoid that route, but jesus doesn 't he actually goes through Samaria. Now, before we go, I think, further, uh, what we see is that Jesus hits Sychar and he engages with a woman at a well. Now, I think we live in a world that's sort of defined by water bottles, right? Like, we have water bottles. So if you want water, you get a water bottle or maybe you go to your tap and you just grab water, right? It's like pretty simple stuff. We don't really live in this sort of I don't know, ongoing awareness of our dependence on water. We live in a water bottle and a tap water world. But if you're living in the first century, you're living in a well world. Now, a well world is a little different, especially if you're in that portion of the world. Uh, you're having to figure out how do you get access of water, right? And we, we learn that this is Jacob's well. There's no obvious connection to where exactly in the Old Testament Jacob built this well. Or, but we know he built it likely to feed his livestock and his family. And then often towns or cities would develop around wells because it was a way to have access to water. If you've maybe been into backpacking or hiking, you have some sense of like, I don't have tap water, so I need to figure out water along the way, right? You're like, bring a water purifier. You figure out how to connect to your water source so you can have ongoing source of water. Now, that's certainly what's happening here, right? They're trying to figure out how to have an ongoing source of water. But there's more to well culture than just water access, I remember being in Liberia a number of years ago, and the town I was in was a well sort of dependent world. And the way it works is you wake up in the morning, and if you want to have water, you want to have tea, you want to cook something, you need to go to a well. And the well is not just a source of gathering water, it's also a gathering place. So you go to get your water, you carry your buckets, and you wait with all these other people in line, and it becomes the social experience. You're talking with your neighbors, you're talking with the guy down the street or the woman down the street. It's a connective communal experience. So a well is not simply about water access, but it's also a gathering place where people gather to get to know one another, to continue in relationship. Make sense? Which then begs the question of why... This woman is alone at a well in the middle of the day in a deserty region. Why is she there in the middle of the day? Why is she by herself? Right? In PG, in the peninsula, we're not too concerned about the middle of the day. It's not that hot. You know, when it hits 75 and some of you are complaining about how hot it is, like, you know, 110, like, now you're getting hot. You know, that is not fun. Why is this woman at a well in the middle of the day? Well, most likely she's socially outcast from her group. So what we see here is Jesus not only crosses a barrier to go through Samaria, he not only then talks to a woman who's Samaritan at a well who is excluded from her people, But then he even says to her, hey, can we share a water-drawing vessel, another barrier that he shouldn't have crossed as a first-century rabbi, talking to a Samaritan woman at a well. Okay, Jesus, you're just crossing every barrier, basically, that existed in the first century, and we're just getting to their dialogue. This is how the conversation goes. Jesus says to her, hey, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like touching on this point, we shouldn't be doing this right now. You're breaking sort of whatever our social customs mores are. And then John or the narrator inserts, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, kind of reinforcing what we were just saying. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we're going to stop there for a second because I think it's important at this point to figure out, so what is Jesus talking about, about living water? We've talked about Samaria, we've talked about wells, and now it's like this idea of living water. So we live in, a, they live in a world where there's the Dead Sea. You saw it on the map a minute ago, right? So this is a, a place, a sea that has no outlet. It's full of salt. Very little can grow there. I remember going on a trip and I was at the Dead Sea and this is dead water. And we took this little hike and we followed this rabbi and she was sort of teaching as we were walking and she led us up this little valley. And you could see in this little valley tucked away at the base of the valley, it was just lush and green. And we were wondering like, what is that? And we could hear this noise and we were wondering what that was. And we came upon this river and this pool and she pointed at it and she says, ma living water. Mahaim, living water, is water that is flowing. It's water that leads to life. And you could see it growing around in this desert, all this green flourishing. In contrast to the Dead Sea, where everything was dead and dying and nothing, very little could grow. So when Jesus says living water, she's thinking in her head on a very practical level, all right, I'm going to get some of this water, it's going to be really good and fresh, and it's not going to have any of the bacteria or parasites that I'm trying to avoid in drinking water, right? No water filters. It's also true in the Hebrew Bible that this idea, this parable, this metaphor of living water is sort of drawn upon continually. Jeremiah 2.13 says that God is a spring of living water. Water that leads to life and flourishing in abundance. The author of Psalm 42 says that he hopes, right, that his soul is like a deer that longs to drink from pools of living water. He says, I want to go to God like this deer goes to the pool so that I can be refreshed. Zechariah talks of a day uh, in fourteen, chapter 14, 18 when purified living water will flow from Jerusalem as the people experience the purification of God, they will flow out of the city like streams of living water. That's the echoes that Jesus is drawing on. This is what the woman says. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? to draw water and what we see playing out and this is I think the third time it's played out uh, so far in the book of John Right? you have Jesus having this dialogue I think it's in chapter 2 about the temple and he says oh I'll rebuild it in three days he's talking about his body he's talking about the kingdom and they're thinking about a building then you get to Nicodemus and Jesus says oh you have to be born again and Nicodemus is thinking literally oh wait how am I going to enter into my mother's womb and be physically born again again Jesus is talking on another plane and we see that playing out again here She's thinking, how are we going to label ladle this water out? And Jesus is talking on another level. right? He is saying to her, in right, verse 14, the water I will give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This is a quote from, uh, I think it's Marian Meyer Thompson. She said, it will come a spring bubbling up inside of you, refreshing you with the new life which is coming into the world with Jesus and which is the life of the whole new world God is making. There's a sense in which this water is not only connected to the internal refreshing and transformation, but a part of the life, a part of the refreshing that is going to come to the world through the kingdom, through the person of Jesus. N.T. Wright says it this way. It says, intrigued by Jesus' offer of living water. I don't think this is projected. She has to have some not realizing that if you want to take Jesus up on his offer of running pure water bubbling up inside of you, you'll have to get rid of the stale, moldy, stagnant water you've been living off all this time. And for her, right, this woman the stagnant water she has been living off has been primarily relational. Hence Jesus' next comment. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is saying, you've been living off the Dead Sea. I want to take you to the mahaim, the living water that is going to lead to true life for you. Now, interestingly, at this point, preachers like me stand on the stage and start condemning this woman. But if interesting, if you look at the actual text, Jesus doesn't condemn her. Do you notice that? Jesus certainly identifies her situation. He certainly says it pretty clearly. But there's no word of like, And you're bad. And you should feel guilty about this. He doesn't try and manipulate her, coerce her, or judge her at that point. She may have been doing some pretty, uh, I don't know, scandalous first century things. She may not have. What we know is that she is doing something that is clearly not bringing her the life she seeks. So one of the things that happens in the first century is primarily a patriarchal culture. We don't know whether she's dumping her husbands or whether she gets married and the husbands dump her. Now she's in this powerless, vulnerable place. And maybe now she's having to cling to another man so that she can have food to eat. So that she can have a house to live in. We don't know her situation. What we know is that what she is doing, she is drinking from Dead Sea dying water that is not giving her life. Now, have you ever been in a conversation where you sort of are getting a little personal with someone and you can feel it in the room? And the person now is uncomfortable, so they sort of switch the subject And the most easy way to do this is to bring up one of two things, either politics or religion, because what it does is it sort of provokes the whole thing, and it takes all the attention off of you. Well, this is the first century equivalent of that. She goes, rather than talking about Caesar, she talks about mountains. I was brought up to think that this mountain here in Samaria was God's holy mountain. But you Jews think yours is the right one. Right, sort of this, you're having this conversation about Jesus with someone, and they're like, no, 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 well, you know, it's getting personal, it's getting real, and then they're like, boom. But how do you know Jesus is the only way? It's like, we were just talking about something that was kind of real, and now we just jumped to 10,000 feet. Now, Jesus, I think he knows this, and he's not going to be sidetracked, but he's also going to honor her question. He says to her in verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we will worship the father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus is saying, okay, I understand your question. But let's be clear, salvation flows from the Jews, right? We see this through Abraham. The blessing of Abraham goes through Abraham, through the Davidic line, through King David, and to Jesus who ends up, and we learn at the end of this conversation, is the Messiah restoring Israel. And Jesus is also looking forward to a day, right, when he is going to ascend to the Father. He's going to be crucified. He's going to go with the Father and send the Spirit to be with the kingdom, to be with people, Right? so that the access to the kingdom is not limited to a temple in Jerusalem, but people have access to God everywhere on the earth. And he even says this beautiful line about, and the Father is out there seeking such worshipers. God isn't just kicking back in heaven. He's like, no, no, no the Father is out there looking. God is on the move. But again, the woman, you know, she's like, man, this is getting uncomfortable. This guy... You know, this is her sort of third tactic, tries a different track. And this is sort of the postmodern equivalent of saying, like, well, I'm, I'm glad you shared your opinion. Uh, one day we'll all know, like, what the truth is, you know. We'll, we'll all be able to see clearly, and sort of her version is, well, one day the Messiah will come, and he'll, he'll help us to know, you know, what's really going on here, whether I'm right or you're right, who knows? And Jesus says to her, you know, I am the Messiah. Now it's hard to imagine in this moment what is going on for her. It's like she's tried everything she could, and Jesus is like, I'm the living water you need. No, oh, no, no, it's not about mountain. The Father is seeking worshipers. You. And then he's like, Oh, Messiah, Messiah. I am the Messiah. And she's sitting there, I imagine, sort of like, What do I do now? Luckily for her, she's saved by the disciples' arrival, which we'll get to next week. She's sort of sitting there, mouth open, like, the disciples arrive and give her a break. So we don't know exactly what her process is. We'll get into next week what happens. And I think one of the questions for us this morning is, we don't know exactly how she pieces it together immediately. But it's important to figure out, how does this then translate into our context? How does this make sense to us? We're not a Samaritan woman at a well 2,000 years ago. How does this story, this dialogue, speak into our lives and our context? I think the first thing is this, um, that the gospel is for everyone. No exceptions. No exceptions. Just step back and think about all the boundaries that Jesus crossed in order to approach this woman. All the things that would have kept his goodness, this living water, from her. He goes through Samaria rather than avoiding it. He approaches a woman, a social outcast, in the middle of the day, which he would have known. Why is she gathering water in the middle of the day when it's hot? What well, outcast. Right, he talks to a woman crossing gender barriers. He offers to share a ladle with her. <laughs> in a context when you didn't do that. Jesus is crossing barriers to be able to offer the goodness of his presence, the living water that leads to life to this woman at a well 2,000 years ago. And the point is, right, this isn't just one event in the life of God that happened a long time ago. This story, I think, in a really profound and beautiful ways reveals the heart of God. I think sometimes we, I don't know, put a lot of pressure on ourselves in trying to follow Jesus. Uh, We kind of beat ourselves up. We're just like, oh man, I stink at this, you know. Sometimes we approach the spiritual life like it's a bunch of hurdles we need to jump over. It's like, oh, I jumped over that one. Okay, I'm good. And if we fall on the hurdle, then we think, man, I stink. And the spiritual life we have is primarily about us. Right, That vision, it's primarily about us and our performance. And if we perform well, then we think we're great, pat ourselves on the back. And if we perform poorly, we beat ourselves up. We think, oh, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. As I was sort of praying before uh, this message this morning, actually downstairs, I feel like, you know, we can approach the spiritual life like hurdles, but I think one of the things that God shows in this passage is this is not a life that is primarily defined about our actions and us being able to jump over hurdles, but it's a picture of a God who is willing to run through walls to get to us. The God is willing to run through all the walls that we put up in order to come and draw near to us. You know, I think sometimes in the spiritual life, like, we stink. Our hearts wander. We don't get it. And what this shows us is that God is willing to break all kinds, break through all kinds of walls and barriers to draw near to us because he loves us. Because he sees us sitting in the pews on Sunday morning, on Monday afternoon, in our homes, and he sees us drinking from the Dead Sea. And he says, no, no, I want you to experience the life-giving presence that he offers. He wants us to drink from waters that refresh and well up, that bubble up to eternal life. And eternal life isn't simply about length, it's about quality. God wants us to experience increasingly his presence and the goodness of his grace in his kingdom. And as you sit here this morning, I think God's word to you is, he'll run through walls to get to you. No matter what barriers you throw in the way, he's gonna draw near. It is for everyone. No exceptions. Not even you and not even me. I think part two is, The gospel is for everyone, no exceptions. Flipped around. See, when we look at first century Judaism, and we look at rabbinic discipleship, this idea that a disciple follows a rabbi, there's a great saying in the first century that rabbis are supposed to follow so, or disciples are supposed to follow so close to their rabbis that the dust of their sandals flicks off onto their clothes. And the saying is this, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This isn't like mind transfer. This isn't like, hey, I can I know what my rabbi knows. This is live the life that your rabbi models. And we're gathered here today to worship God but also to practice the way of Jesus. We also live in an incredibly divided culture, nation, and world. Racially, I think gender, there's all kinds of animosity right now gender-wise. Politically, whatever, we can think of economically, there's so many divisions in our world. And as people who practice the way of Jesus, we should be the kind of people We are invited to be the kind of people that are willing to cross those barriers in order to offer people life-giving water. And I think one of the challenges of this passage for us is when we look, you know, if we go live for a second, when you look at your friends and the people you spend time with, I think we need to ask ourselves in an honest way, like, are they pretty much like us? racially, economically, politically? Are we just hanging out with people that affirm what we think and what we believe? Or are we crossing barriers like Jesus did? My experience of contemporary culture, particularly right now in America, is that we primarily associate with people that think like us, agree with us, and reinforce what we already think. I don't see Jesus doing that. I see Jesus as the kind, of people who, the kind of person who breaks down barriers so that the life-giving presence of the kingdom flows to everyone because the gospel is for everyone, no exceptions. Lastly, I think this is sort of the center of the text. Jesus is the wellspring of life. We thought it wasn't so important, right? We put it up on our wall. (laughs) Jesus said to everyone, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. The water that I give in him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus makes clear in uh, John 2 that he is the new temple. And the temple, right, is the center of rabbinic Judaism. And what he says is, hey, I am the new temple. And what he's saying is here, hey, I am the well that leads to life. If you want to experience life-giving, flourishing, if you want to come alive, come to me. Drink the water I give you. And as I was preparing this message, I think the the key question that kept coming back to me for you and for me today, living in a relatively affluent culture, living in a fairly busy culture, living in a place that we are, I think, very tempted towards distraction. I think Jesus' question to you and to me today is Are you even thirsty? We know that Jesus is willing to go to great lengths to draw near to us. We know that the Father is seeking out true worshipers. I think the question as we come in this morning is, do we really want what Jesus has to offer? As I was preparing for this message, I was sort of reminded of a dialogue that I often have with my children. And if you're a parent of kids, uh, maybe like under, oh, I don't know, even know, maybe it's an adult thing too. But anyway, have you ever had this sort of interaction with your kids where they're watching a show on TV and you try and talk to them and they like immediately respond? No, just kidding. They just sit there and they are so glued in, they literally, you cannot like unglue their faces from the screen. Raise your hand if you're a parent and you've had that experience. Okay, a few of us, Yeah right, and you're like sitting there, you're like yelling almost, and they're like zero recognition. You literally have to like go over to the, to the TV, and you either need to like stand in their view, and then they'll get angry at you, but they'll recognize you're there, or you grab the pause button, and you push it, and you say, hey guys, I have a question, and they'll be initially irritated, right, because they're like, why are you turning off my TV, you know, but you need to hit the pause button, in order to, like, get their attention back. So as I was thinking about this, I felt like God was like, to me, he was like, Tony, that's exactly what you do with me. You get so caught up in the things going on around you. You focus on all these things going on, and God's like, I'm speaking to you. Hey, Tony, Tony. Hey, you over there on the couch. And I am just glued into whatever is distracting me. And God in his grace and in his mercy, right? He comes over with his little God remote, right? And he's like, pause. He's like, hey, remember I'm here. Remember, I am the wellspring of life. Tony, if you want to flourish Drink of the water that I want to offer you. It's right here. And I think maybe this morning for some of us is that pause moment. Where you've been going through life and summer. You know, you're on vacation. You're back. You're on vacation again. You're trying to cram as much vacation in as you can before school starts. Or, you know, while the fog is just dominating in the summer, you know our our, uh, PG winter. You know, and in the midst of it, in the midst of the crazy, in the midst of all the distractions, God in his grace comes up this morning and says, I'm here. I'm here. Do you want to drink deep of the water I have to offer? And as we enter into worship, and I invite the worship team up here, I think that's sort of the invitation as we go into worship. And the first song we're going to sing is called Build My Life. And My invitation to you as we enter into this song is to sing it as almost like a commitment, declaring who God is and inviting God to be the foundation of your life, inviting God to be the spring of water, the source of your life that you can grow and flourish in him. And part of worship, if you just feel super stuck and you'd like someone to pray for you, we'll have a couple people praying over here. We just invite you to come, receive prayer. If you want to worship God with uh, sort of the giving of your financial resources, we have these little buckets on the back of those pews. Feel free to worship God in that way. With that said, let's let's take this as sort of a God pause moment and enter into worship. Let me pray. God, you are good. God, you will run through walls to come near us. And even right now, Holy Spirit, I just I sense as people sort of maybe are tempted to sort of lean back away from you or tempted to throw up walls. God, I just pray that you would in your grace and glory and kindness draw near to us. Even if we're a little defensive or feeling a little numb in this moment, God, would you draw near? Thank God for those of us who come in this morning and feel like the Dead Sea. God, I pray that you would lead them, lead us to the Mahrim, the living water that wells up into us, into eternal life. May we experience you this morning.